0: chapter 10 of my experiences as an executioner by james berry this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ashley jane chapter 10 on capital punishment one of the questions which is most frequently put to me is whether i consider capital punishment is a right and proper thing to this i can truly answer that i do For my own part I attach much weight to the scripture injunction, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And I think that the abolition of capital punishment would be in defiance of the divine command. Therefore I would not abolish capital punishment altogether, but as I shall explain later, I would greatly alter the conditions under which it is imposed. Perhaps many of my readers will say that the scriptural command should have no weight and others will say it it was a command given under the dispensation of law while we live under the dispensation of grace. Therefore I would argue that quite apart from any consideration of a religious nature capital punishment is absolutely necessary for the checking of the greatest criminals. In the discharge of my duties as a policeman both in the Nottingham in the bradford and in the west riding police force i have had many chances of studying the ways of life and thought of the criminal classes and i have paid a great deal of attention to the subject as the result of my experience i can safely say that capital punishment and the cat are the only legal penalties that possess any real terrors for the hardened criminal for the man who might be called a professional as distinguished from an amateur ruffian Such a man does what he can to keep out of prison because he dislikes restraint and routine and sobriety, but this dislike is not strong enough to deter him from any crime which offers even a chance of escaping scot-free, and I do not think that the fear of imprisonment ever occurs to him when he has once got criminal work actually in hand. Penal servitude, even for life, has no very acute terrifying influence, partly because no criminal ever believes that it will be a reality in his case, as he feels sure that he will get a commutation of sentence, and partly because even if he were sure that the imprisonment were actually for life, he knows that prison life is not such a dreadful fate, after all, when one gets used to it but when it comes to a question of a death sentence it is quite another matter death is a horrible mystery and a death on the scaffold a cold-blooded predetermined and ignominious death is especially horrible to the criminal mind as a rule the most desperate criminals are those who are most terrified by the thought of death at the hands of the executioner possibly because the most desperate men spring from the most superstitious class of the community and have the greatest dread of that something after death which they cannot define the criminal classes do not neglect their newspapers but keep themselves pretty well posted either by reading or conversation upon the subjects that are of most direct interest to them and follow all the details of the most important criminal trials in this way they always keep more or less before them the thought of the nature of capital punishment and i believe that it will be found that the number of capital crimes in any given period is inversely proportionate to the number of capital punishments in the immediately preceding period whenever there is a series of executions without reprieves the number of murder decreases and on the other hand after a period in which several persons have been tried for murder and acquitted or reprieved after sentence the number of crimes appear to increase I do not think that this rule can be demonstrated forcibly and convincingly by a reference to the mere number of murders, convictions, reprieves and executions during the past few years, because there are many considerations which bear upon the significance of an execution or reprieve, but I think that any one who has given attention to the subject will bear me out in my contention." undoubtedly the fear of death is a great deterring power amongst abandoned men and the fear is most powerful when the death seems most certain and the hope of reprieve most remote this consideration leads me to think that the deterrent value of the death sentence would be greatly increased if it could be made absolutely irrevocable Considering capital punishment as a moral power for frightening criminals still at large, I think it would be much better if in all cases where there is the slightest possible chance of reprieve, the sentence were suspended for a time. I advocate that the sentence of death once passed should be a sentence which the doomed man, as well as his friends and sympathisers, who are all at liberty, should regard as quite irrevocable at the same time i do not advocate an increase in the number of executions just the reverse as the best means to this end i think we ought to have a considerable alteration in our criminal law as it relates to murder cases i think that the jury should have more power over the sentence and for this purpose i think that they ought to have the choice of five classes of verdict namely one not guilty two not proven three murder in the third degree four murder in the second degree five murder in the first degree in the case of a verdict of not guilty the prisoner would of course be acquitted and would be a free man as he is with such a verdict at present in the case of the verdict of not proven it should be within the power of the judge to remand the prisoner pending the further investigation of any clues that might seem likely to throw light upon the case or to release him either with or without bail or police supervision a verdict of murder in the third degree would be brought in in cases where there was undoubted proof of the crime being committed by the prisoner but in which the circumstances were such as to make it extremely unlikely that the prisoner would ever again commit a violent crime this would cover the cases of people who shoot their friends and then plead that they did not think it was loaded and would be a much better verdict than the accidental death which is generally returned at present When the jury find this verdict of murder in the third degree, it should rest with the judge to impose a term of imprisonment, long or short, according to the circumstances. Murder in the second degree would embrace cases in which the murder was fully proved, but in which there was not premeditation or intent to murder. Under this head would come a number of deaths resulting from rows, brawls and assaults without intent to kill the judge would have the power to pass a sentence of death or of penal servitude for life murder in the first degree in which both intent and result had been murder would be a verdict leaving the judge no option but to impose the death penalty another question which ought to be considered in this connection is the question of appeals at present appeals are made to the home secretary he is really assisted by a number of other gentlemen who examine most thoroughly into the original evidence and any additional evidence that may have turned up but this is a tribunal not legally appointed and the public notion is that in cases of appeal the reversal of the sentence lies in the hands of one man i do not think that even the most abandoned wretches would impute any unfairness to the english home secretary but i know that in many quarters there is an idea that the home secretary is a very kind gentleman who will let him off if he possibly can and such an idea seems to be a very mischievous one a court of appeal would appear less personal and would be far less likely to be suspected of leniency if it consisted of three judges one of whom should be the judge who had originally tried the case To such a bench of judges, I would allow appeals to be made, and would give them power to reopen cases, refer them back to the juries, or to modify sentences, but not to reverse the jury's verdict. This would mean that in the case of a verdict of murder in the first degree, the only way in which the execution could be prevented would be by referring the case back to the jury, and this should only be done on the production of new evidence pointing to a miscarriage of justice. In the extreme case of evidence turning up at the last moment, the Home Secretary should have power to grant a stay of execution for such a length of time as would allow the bench of judges to reopen the case. The drawing up and presentation of petitions by people who are in no way connected with the case would to a great extent be done away with under such a system as I have outlined. But in order to provide for cases where the system might not have this effect, I would make it a punishable offence to attempt to influence the decision of the judges or jurymen by an appeal to any consideration other than the evidence. This advice I give because in so many, nay, in most cases, the appeals contained in petitions are based upon considerations other than the justice of the case. If the condemned person is an interesting character, or if there is any sort of excuse upon which an appeal can be based, there are always a great number of people who have no special knowledge of the case, and who, perhaps, have not even read the newspaper reports, who are ready to get up petitions, collect signatures, and stir up a lot of sympathy for one who too often deserves nothing but execration and contempt such agitations lead to much misrepresentation of facts and often to sweeping condemnations of the judge and jury they tend to infuse in the minds of young people especially an incorrect notion that the administration of the law is uncertain and ineffectual even if it is not unjust and corrupt the mere fact of the extent to which the consideration of loathsome crimes and their punishment is brought under the notice of children by this system of petitions is in my mind sufficient argument for its complete suppression one case i might instance in which the master of two public schools led the whole of the children under their charge through an ante-room in which a petition was lying and made them all sign it in turn This kind of thing occurs whenever a petition praying for a sentence of death to be reversed or commuted is in the course of signature and surely such a thing should not be possible. In many cases the people who draw up these petitions are people who object on principle to all capital punishment but unfortunately the principle is entirely lost to sight when dealing with individual cases. The fact of big petitions being represented in one case, while no effort is made in another case with similar features, naturally leads uneducated people to think that there is uncertainty and injustice about the whole affair. There is still one other respect in which I think our law with reference to murder and the death penalty ought to be altered, and that is with regard to the length of time allowed to elapse between sentence and execution. In the interests of all concerned, I would reduce the time from three clear weeks at present to one week only. No doubt many readers will cry out against this as an unnecessary cruelty to all the condemned, but I say that I would do it in the interests of all after full consideration and an unusually full knowledge of the ideas of the condemned upon the subject. It is not a shorter time that would be a cruelty. The present long time is where the real cruelty comes in. So far as I know, the three weeks' grace given to the condemned man is intended as a time for repentance and for attending to the affairs of the soul. Therefore, the question of allowing a long or short time is to a great extent a religious one, and dangerous for me to tackle, so I will confine my remarks as far as possible to matters of fact and mere common-sense considerations if the only purpose of the time allowed between sentence and execution is to admit of conversion and a preparation for heaven it is fair to ask of anyone who wishes to continue the present system whether it serves a purpose if not there would seem to be no valid argument in favour of its continuance personally i am convinced by long experience that the hope of regeneration during these three weeks in the case of murderers is absolutely vain there are many instances in which the criminal becomes penitent as it is sometimes termed and these penitents may divide it into two cases firstly there is the class of those who have committed murder without intent or premeditation in a fit of frenzy or under peculiar circumstances they have killed a human being It may be a half-starved mother who has killed the baby she could not feed, or a man who in a whirlwind of temper has killed the unfaithful and miserable wife whose conduct has made his life a hell upon earth for years. It may be many other similar cases which under the scheme of five possible verdicts propounded above would be returned as murder in the second or third degree. Under such a law the extreme penalty would not be imposed. But while we are under our present law, and supposing that these persons are condemned, without chance of reprieve, we may fairly ask whether the three weeks' grace is an advantage to them. Such criminals are truly repentant, or rather remorseful. As a rule, the enormity of the crime bursts upon them in the first calm moment after its commission. They recoil in horror from the deed they have done and would gladly sacrifice anything, even life itself, to undo that deed again. There is true repentance, which I take it is the key to forgiveness, even before their apprehension and condemnation. Everything that can be done on earth by or for such poor souls can be done in a week and they would not ask for more. Their repentance is sincere their horror of their crime is greater than their dread of death which they welcome as a means of expiation is any good purpose served by keeping such people for three weeks in agony the second class of penitents consists of a horrible section of humanity the cowardly desperadoes these are usually men whose crimes have shown a refinement of cruelty and callousness that is positively revolting they are the hardened or professional criminals whose hearts are devoid of pity or remorse and equally devoid of the least spark of courage they are the miserable men whose lives have been spent in defying and blaspheming god but who when they see death before them whine and howl and beg for the intercession of the chaplain or any other godly person they may meet with not because they repent of their sins but because they are frightened almost to death by the thought of a fiery hell which has been painted before their imaginations in glowing colours To such men as these, I am sure that the shortening of the waiting time would be the greatest possible mercy, for the longer time only gives them opportunity to work themselves into an almost demented state. At the end of three weeks they are often so broken down and hysterical as to be incapable of correctly understanding anything, and their only remaining feeling is a wild, frantic dread of the scaffold.' Besides the two classes of penitents, there only remains the class who are not penitent at all. They are mostly men who have been long acquainted with crime, who have made it the business of their lives. They look upon the law and its officers much as a businessman looks upon a clever and unscrupulous competitor, and upon a sentence of death as one of the business risks. Life ends for them not at the scaffold but in the dock when sentence is pronounced. From that time they sink into a state of sullen indifference or take up any occupation that may offer merely to kill time. In some cases they take to Bible reading and prayers because they think it can't do any harm and may do a bit of good and because they have nothing else to do. No one can say that such men are penitent since on release they would return to their vicious ways. They would not be likely to reach any better state if they were allowed to live three months instead of three weeks for the only regret that they can be brought to feel is personal and purely selfish. It is founded on fear of hell and it is not a contrition for having committed the crime but a regret that the crime carries with it a punishment in the next world. Convicts of this class when they have no hope of reprieve do not thank us for the three weeks of life that are given to them If they could have their own choice, they would prefer to walk straight from the dock to the scaffold and to get it over at once. In every case, if the matter is thoroughly inquired into, on lines of common sense instead of mere sentiment, I think the conclusion will be that the three weeks allowed are no advantage whatever to the convicts. In most cases, their position will be decidedly improved by reducing the time. There are other distinct advantages to be gained by reducing the interval. In the first place, it would greatly improve the moral effect of the death sentence. Retribution following directly after conviction is a distinct object lesson, and the shorter the time between, the more obvious is the connection between the crime and the punishment. When even three weeks elapse, the connection is often lost. In the second place, the alteration I advocate would greatly prevent the stirring up of false sentiment in favour of convicts who happen to have an interesting personality. It would put a stop to the petition signing which is often indulged in by people who know nothing of the case but who are worked upon to express sympathy with the convict and want faith in the justice of our system of trial. If only a week elapsed between sentence and execution, the facts of the trial and details of the evidence would remain fresher in the public mind and people will be less liable to be led to mistrust the justice of the sentence. To all the people who have charge of the convicts before execution, a shortening of the time would be a great blessing, for such a charge is often a soul-harrowing experience. The chaplains especially, whose experiences are often most unpleasant, and whose earnest efforts meet with such disappointing return, would, I think, welcome the change. End of chapter 10 Recording by Ashley Jane